want to give you an update on what's happening in the Middle East and talk to a guest that I think has uh, got some really interesting insight. Might have seen him on the West Block yesterday, but uh, the situation there continues to get worse uh, almost minute by minute, truly. More than 5,000 people now dead in Gaza, 436 last night alone as Israel increases air raids in advance of the expected ground invasion. Meanwhile, trickles of aid are starting to get through, but it's nowhere near enough to make a meaningful impact yet, at least. But it's something. More on that coming up. But two hostages were released last week. Hamas called that a humanitarian gesture. But again, that's a drop in the bucket, too. Somewhere inside Gaza, there are more than 200 hostages, front of mind, obviously, for their friends and family and for governments around the world, because they're not all from Israel. There are Canadians. There are Americans. The ones that were released last week are American. So how do you go about handling a situation like that? Phil Andrew is a former special agent specializing uh, from the FBI, specializing in hostage negotiations. Uh, and he joins us now to go through uh, some of this I don't know, the details on how this might work. Phil, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate your time. Glad to be with you. So Friday we saw the two hostages released. Now, I'm assuming that doesn't just come out of the blue, of course. What do you think is going on behind the scenes, the stuff that we don't see right now? Uh, what kind of activity is taking place? Well, thankfully, the, this mother and daughter were reunited with their families. And I think it 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 shows that the intensive engagement um, uh, negotiating through any available kind of opportunity really can, can, can provide for success. Now, Hamas has said that they did this for humanitarian reasons. The reality is they did this because some interest of theirs was served. Right. And, and we know that Qatar was instrumental in this using the contacts that they have pre-existing because Qatar has a strong relationship with the Palestinian um, areas as well as Hamas. So they're able to have these these important conversations that we're able to then leverage into peaceful resolutions. So lots of negotiations, lots of, you know, the phone lines are burning. Um, there are more than 200 hostages, Phil. Now, like you're, you're, you're a former FBI hostage negotiator. I, I, I'm certain you never dealt with a situation this complex. I'm wondering if you were. How do you even, when you've got 200 people, all from different countries, you don't necessarily know where they are. They're probably not together. I mean, just, it seems like there are so many different wrinkles to this. How complicated is this in terms of trying to negotiate the release? of these hostages? Well, one of the, the most difficult factors is that there is this ongoing kind of war theater that is going to interrupt communication lines, that's going to dramatically um, change interests. You know, as the, the threat of violence or war moves toward potentially where hostages are being held, that is going to, to affect the perceptions of potentially hostage takers and those that those, those, those hostage takers work for. We have, at any given time, there could be uh, over 100 Americans and Canadians um, that are being held hostage somewhere in the world. So we're, we're used to the idea of working multiple hostage matters at the same time. And one of the important things is is for the for negotiators and for nations and and those agencies that are supporting these families to remember is that each one of these really has to be treated distinct and individual because one the, the hostage 
themselves as an individual person, their family, and the way that we support them, that's going to have, have, have unique needs, but also the circumstance in which those hostages are being held, we can't treat those monolithically. Right. And what we're seeing is that, that it may be that this isn't a single group that's holding all hostages. They're certainly not holding them in one place. Sure. And that the interests of each one of those hostage takers and who they have to answer to are unique. And that creates an opportunity. But it also means that the things that have work in one negotiation aren't necessarily going to work in the other. But the fact that, that two have been released shows that it can be done, that working with third parties, um, exercising influence through other nation states like Qatar or the Red Cross or other NGOs on the ground um, are things that have to be pursued if we want to see other safe releases. Is the focus negotiation, Phil, I'm just trying to think in terms of a rescue, like you say, there's over 200, I, I don't know if they know where they all are, they're probably in various different locations. Is rescue even something that's on the table, or is the focus primarily on negotiation, or, or is everything up for consideration at this point? I would think that everything's up for consideration, and that unique circumstances of individual hostages, those may present rescue opportunities, which will then be have to be carefully weighed as to risk to the hostage, risk to the operators that would be effectuating that release, and any all the other things of like where that information came from, how it might affect other negotiations. So one way to think about this is that there's 200 different unique circumstances around each hostage taken, and that each one of those is on a, a multilateral, multidimensional scale, and that that one potentially could affect the others, but that you need to stay focused on the unique attributes of that particular hostage and the circumstances around, uh, around who and how and where they may be, be being held. Talking with Phil Andrew, a former FBI special agent specializing in hostage negotiation. I'm wondering, and I don't know, um, what, what's it like for the hostages right now, Phil? We're, we're going on two weeks, uh, more than two weeks. It was October 7th when they were taken out of Israel. Uh, any idea what life must be like for them at this point? Well, here's what we tell folks. And, and uh, you know, at, at our agency tax group, we provide a lot of support, both pre Deployment for folks that might be, be entering into dangerous situations where, where uh, kidnapping and ransom are a, a potentiality and then responding to folks in this need. So, so one thing that we know is that one of the most dangerous moments in a hostage taking is when they're taken. And we saw that. We saw the way that played out. I mean, we actually could see that in videos that there was a lot of mayhem, a lot of destructive, uh, tragic violence. So that was very dangerous for the hostages. But what we find then that after they're transported, that that tends to be leveling out. And we are now in, you know, beyond three weeks. And the things, the logistics around caring for, maintaining, securing a hostage create their own dynamic that they're, that the hostage themselves begins to reveal more of an individual human as opposed to this, this 
this whatever the dehumanizing kind of image of the hostage was that that helped motivate and sustain the kind of um, brutal violence that was, that took place. So that can change the perceptions of even hostage takers. And and then as the the interests of the hostage takers are affected by the dynamics that we're seeing, you know, an active uh, you know war theater. Um, those can be influenced as well. So then, the, the, then the, the, the other most dangerous piece is, is obviously at release. If there's any sure. confusion about about the terms, about how, about where the release takes place, um, you know what we what we know from experience is that hostage takers tend to be more concerned about their own safety than potentially hostages, and and so how they are treated and how that actually. Um, the, the release is managed is a very important um, component in terms of preserving the safety of the hostages themselves. Uh, Phil, last one, and I really appreciate your time. Um, you mentioned, you know, they're, they're more concerned with their own safety than the hostage safety. When we're talking about hostage safety, we have a ground invasion that appears to be imminent. Um, we've got airstrikes taking place um, consistently for the last two weeks that have killed 5,000 people in Gaza. Um, the hostage safety doesn't, I mean, can it be? How is it complicated by the fact, like you said, it's an active war theater and an invasion appears imminent. Um, uh, hostages, uh, they, it seems to me like their safety is not the chief consideration here. Can't be. Well, it certainly is for those that are working on on securing their lease and for these families. You know, um, how and, and the fact that there is an active um, battle being um, effectuated here absolutely influences, um, in some ways, um, creating a lot of difficulties, but in other ways, changing the potential interests of the parties involved. So um, it, there, there could be opportunities to see more release, um, but maintaining those communication lines, the clear, transparent, kind of trust-based communication lines that are required to secure hostages are very difficult when um, you're, you're in an active battle. So that, that presents very unique and challenging circumstances, but it shouldn't stop the dialogue and, and, and utilizing dialogue um, at any available opportunity to secure uh, the safe release of these folks. Yeah, they will continue working right up until the last minute, no doubt about it. Um, Phil, great insight. Thank you so much for being here today. I really do appreciate your time. Glad to be with you.